morning. Welcome to the Lunch Break Bible Study. 20 minutes so that you can be in the Word today, even if the only time you have is your lunch break. I'm Pastor Frank from Kansas City, Missouri. Happy to be with you today. We are beginning in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus has spent time in Capernaum and comes into the region of Judea across the Jordan River. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them. And here in chapter 10, Jesus is going to be teaching again to this people what he had been teaching all throughout Mark's gospel. And Jesus had been teaching basically three things. The first thing we see is back in chapter 7, Jesus had observed that people were often using their own traditions as an outward sign of righteousness. Look at how good I am. Look at how well I follow the law. But rather doing that than being actually righteous themselves, actually having a heart like God wants you to have. Now that came up in a question about ceremonial washing of hands, but Jesus points out that there are many other ways the Pharisees do this, and we'll talk about that here again. The second thing Jesus has been teaching, we just saw back in Capernaum, is that we should not consider ourselves more important or more valuable than others in the kingdom. We've all been brought here by someone else, and we are humble about this. And the third thing that Jesus had been teaching is that inheriting eternal life means to be a follower of Jesus. And to follow Jesus, we must follow him to the cross. So verse 2, here's that first teaching uh, that Jesus is going to restate. It's that teaching about not covering up your, your sin, your selfishness, your heart with a thin layer of piety, a thin layer of good works, uh, because God knows the truth. Some Pharisees, chapter 10, verse 2, some Pharisees came and tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus asks, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man, notice the change in, uh, <laughs> notice the change in, in language here. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And they say, well, Moses allowed us to do this, uh, to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, this is an interesting question because very often Jesus's opponents will come to him and they'll try to find what's called a wedge issue. And this is this happens in Western democratic politics where you have a group of voters that are going to vote against you and you find some issue, something that will divide those voters in half. And you stick that wedge issue in there because what you're hoping is that you can divide those voters and peel some of them off to you. That's what is happening here. They found this wedge issue. Uh, they want to divide Jesus's voter, uh, his voters. They want to, they want to divide Jesus's followers up on this question about divorce. Uh, it's the same thing they do with the question about paying taxes to Caesar. Same type of, uh, same type of tactic they're using. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away, and then Jesus says this. He says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. So Jesus has caught them again trying to get around the difficult task of being who God wants you to be. They're trying to get around the difficult points of the law by placing a veneer of legality, right? This, this thin layer of legalism on their desires. It's the same thing Jesus has talked about earlier when people were withholding 
the parental support from their parents, right? They, their parents in their old age were not being supported by their children because the children would say, oh no, this thing, I can't give it to my mom and dad. I had, this is devoted to God. I've got this and it's, it's devoted to God. I can't give it to mom and dad to support them in their old age. Jesus says this idea that you're going to um, write a certificate of, of divorce, like Moses says, or you're just kind of covering over uh, something, something wicked that you want to do with uh, some other point of the law. And then Jesus doesn't let them get away with this. This is what he says uh, at the beginning, uh, chapter 10, verse 6, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. All right, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2 here. So he's quoting Moses himself. And then he continues, for this reason, again, quoting Moses from Genesis chapter 2, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Jesus elaborates, so they are no longer two people, but rather they are one person. And then in verse 9, here's uh, the, the quote that we hear in weddings all the time. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So when it comes to the moral laws of the Old Testament, Jesus is not one to sort of back off of the, how harsh they can be. Jesus doesn't really go around and saying, you guys are taking this way too seriously. That's never what he does. Jesus really turns up the heat on the Old Testament law, and he does it to people who are trying to get around those laws by claiming righteousness that they don't have. And that's what's happening here. People are trying to get around the laws of marriage by claiming this other righteousness that I follow Moses' rule, and now I'm doing things according to what God wants. And Jesus says that's not at all what God wants. Right? Just for you to slap a, a little uh, layer of, of law on top is not what God wants. God wants you to have a righteous heart. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a second, but I want to take a little break here and talk about marriage. I want to talk a, a little, because it's not something that probably we're going to cover here for the rest of Mark's Gospel, and the next book I want to, I want to study together with you is not going to be talking about this either. But I want to talk about marriage, because I want to ask the question, what makes marriage Christian marriage? What do we mean when we say Christian marriage? Christian marriage can't simply be that two Christians are married. Because even in the humblest and most pious people, uh, they behave in ways contrary to God's will. They remain on this side of heaven, sinners in relationship to each other. So what do we mean, though, when we say Christian marriage? So it's, it can't be simply that two Christians are married. But it also can't simply be just those virtues or characteristics of marriage that we find desirable and good. It can't simply just be faithfulness, love, honor, etc. until death do us part. Because none of those things are exclusive to Christians. Being faithful, loving your neighbor, being with them uh, faithfully and, and truly until death do you part, that's not exclusive to Christians. People do this all over the world. People of all religious backgrounds and people of no religious background have long and happy marriages full of these virtues. So the question remains, is there such a thing as Christian marriage? And what is it? I believe that when you search the scriptures, you'll find that Christian marriage is a big deal for us because it's bigger than just the institution of marriage. 
Granted, marriage is the cornerstone of all human society. This is the foundational relationship that God established from the very beginning. Right? So that's something that, as Jesus says, no human, Christian or otherwise, can take this lightly. But what makes Christian marriage, quote-unquote, Christian, is that it reflects a reality greater than just the institution or just the relationship between two people. The relationship between husband and wife among Christians is a symbol. It's a sign of the relationship between Christ and his church. So when Christians live in marriage, it shows the world what the relationship between Christ and his church is like. That is the goal for Christian marriage, and that's what makes marriage Christian. And like I said, you search the scriptures for this, because this, I believe, is what the Bible clearly teaches. One of the uh, most famous passages in scripture regarding marriage is in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. You can look this up right now, uh, beginning with verse uh, 21 or 22, I believe. Uh, St. Paul lays out a relationship between husband and wife, and his description causes our modern ears a lot of vexation. People are just, ah, they don't like it. Because this is the one where the uh, it says, wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. So in our modern ears, we're like, whoa, that, that can't be. And I don't have time to really break that down. Uh, <laughs> I don't have time to really break that down and talk about it today. But you know what? You know the passage I'm talking about. I can't get, get, get into the details of it. But he gives us a way to properly understand what marriage itself is. Is. It's not simply that two Christians are, are married to one another. It's not simply that they have uh, performed these vows or have, have exercised these virtues because lots of people of lots of faiths and no faith have these same virtues in their relationship. But he lays out a self-sacrificial relationship from the husband for the wife, just as Christ sacrificed everything for the church. And that self-sacrifice, that idea of self-sacrifice is controversial for our for our modern day because what do we think? We think that um, it's an equal partnership and, every, and you know, it, it's not how St. Paul lays it out. He lays it out as the husband gives everything. There's nothing he holds back. For the husband, it's not a 50-50 partnership. For the husband, it's I give everything because Christ gave everything. For the wife, she submits to the husband as the church submits to Christ. It's not a 50-50 partnership for her. For her, it is the husband has given everything. The husband sacrifices all he is and has. And for that reason, I recognize that sacrifice and I live within it. I live within those bounds. I live within that structure. Okay? Now, I don't really have time to get into a whole bunch more about this because there's a whole lot we can talk about. But I am talking about how the scriptures do this. And here in, in Ephesians chapter 5, St. Paul quotes the same thing that Jesus is quoting here in Mark chapter 10. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Both Jesus and St. Paul, when discussing marriage, go back to Genesis chapter 2. But this is what St. Paul adds. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And what St. Paul is saying is that even at the very beginning, at the very root of all creation, when God makes marriage for the first time, St. Paul is saying marriage is good and it's holy and valuable, but there's something bigger there. 
God is creating a relationship that is supposed to be a model, an example for the relationship between Christ and the church that is not yet revealed, but will be revealed when Jesus comes. So the first place in all the scriptures where marriage is even discussed, St. Paul says this is really about Jesus. It's not just about marriage. And another place the relationship is described between Christ and the church as, as a relationship between husband and wife is at the end of the Bible. So at the very beginning in Genesis 2, and, in the, and then at the very end in, in Revelation chapter 21, this is what St. John writes. Now, this scene is following the, the final victory of Christ over Satan and speaks of the kingdom of heaven and the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Uh, this is what St. John writes. He, he sees this in his vision. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And here it is in verse 2, uh, Revelation 21. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Again, I don't have time to cover all of Revelation today, just the same as I don't have time to cover all of uh, Ephesians chapter 5 today. But the holy city in this vision, the holy city, the New Jerusalem, is representational. It represents the church in triumph at the end of all things, the saints returning with Christ when he comes in his glory. And they are described here as a bride. What we are seeing is the first mention of marriage in the scriptures and the last mention of marriage in the scriptures, and both pointing as not just marriage, but the relationship of Christ and the church. So for Christians, although we affirm and appreciate everything that marriage does for people in the world, no matter whether they are Christians or not, right, we look at our own marriages in a different light. Our own marriages, that is to say Christian marriages, the marriages between husband and wife of Christians, it is to be a reflection of the relationship between Jesus and the church. It's a relationship of servant leadership and faithful discipleship, faithful submission. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what St. Paul is talking about. And that's what it means to have a Christian marriage. Going back into Mark's gospel now, chapter 10, verse 10. It says, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. What do you mean, Jesus, when you say the two have become one flesh and what God has put together, let not human beings separate? What do you mean by that? Because Jesus, it's not really a good look for you to be disagreeing with Moses. <laughs> if Moses says you can write a certificate of divorce, you should be able to write a certificate of divorce. You shouldn't really be disagreeing with him, Jesus says. And, and here it is. He doubles down on this. He doesn't back down. He says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Before I even talk about this, I am not, right, doing pastoral counseling from behind a microphone, okay? Um, if you are, if you are going through a situation like this, or if you have been through a situation like this, um, what's important is to talk to your pastor because I am not your pastor. Uh, you are not in the room with me. I don't know anything about what's going on in your life and, and, and what's happening in your home. I am not privy to any of that information and I'm not doing pastoral counseling from, you know, from Kansas city to wherever you may be. I am telling you what the scriptures are saying and giving you the understanding of how uh, and giving you the meaning of how to understand them. 
the application of that understanding to your life, that's something that your pastor is going to do for you. So let's get back to the text when Jesus says, if a man marries, uh, divorces his wife or a woman divorces her husband and either one of them marries somebody else, they are committing adultery. And this is the point. Moses is not the problem. The problem is with those who want to put that thin layer of morality or even a thin layer of legalism or a thin layer of piety over their misdeeds. Don't think that all you have to do is fill out some paperwork and God will regard your new marriage as faithful. Because in his eyes, you are acting as if you never dissolved the first one. right? That piece of paper is not fooling God. This is because the relationship between husband and wife for the people of God is supposed to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. And Christ never abandons the church because he has found a quote-unquote better people. It's the people of God, both Old and New Testaments, that uh, choose to search for a quote-unquote better God. We'll never find one, but we keep looking because we're sinners and that's just what we do. (laughs) Moving on from there uh, into verse 13 of chapter 10. Remember, Jesus is teaching the people of, uh, of Judea, and he is reiterating the things that he had been teaching in other places. The first one we just got through was this teaching about marriage, but it was really the point of it was this practice of laying like a, like a tablecloth over a, over a, uh, a rough uh, a rough wooden table makes it kind of dresses it up, but really the reality of it is underneath. Or uh, like a good chef doesn't put a lot of sauce on their food to, in order to hide problems with the food, right? A good chef makes good food. Um, same thing is true about our righteousness. We don't cover up the hardness of our hearts with legal paperwork. That's the first teaching. The second teaching is one that we had just seen in, in, in chapter 9, this idea that no one is more important than anyone else in the kingdom of God. And this is what he does to illustrate that fact. Chapter 10, verse 13 of Mark's gospel. People were bringing little children to Jesus so that he would touch them and bless them. Uh, the disciples didn't like this. Um, they would rebuke the people, so kind of chasing away, like, get these kids out of here. Now, verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, right? We're going to talk about that word in a second, but he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, to people like these little children. So what are the disciples really upset about? I'm sure this isn't the first time Jesus has interacted with children, But I think the implication here is that the disciples thought that these kids were not important. That Jesus should be spending his time teaching adults, people who can consider his words, and in their minds, follow him. But what Jesus understands, and why he gets kind of angry here, now the word, like I said, indignant means to be upset because somebody has done something offensive. This word indignant is how the disciples felt when James and John asked Jesus to sit on his right and his left hand when he comes into his kingdom. Uh, The disciples are indignant about this. When the authorities see Jesus after he cleanses the temple and people were praising him as the son of David in the streets, uh, the the authorities were indignant about this. The disciples felt uh, when the woman poured out the expensive oil onto Jesus' head, the disciples were indignant about this. They felt like something wrong has happened, something that needs to be corrected, and, and having sort of a negative emotional 
uh, a negative emotional reaction to it. That's how Jesus is feeling when the disciples are rebuking the parents bringing the little kids to Jesus. So Jesus says in verse 15, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, we need to step back here. What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a little child receives it? What do we, what, what do we observe in children that helps us to understand being a child of God? The point here is that these children are seeking only to be in the presence of Jesus. They don't come with their own agenda. They don't come because they want to be superior to anybody else. They just want to be in Jesus' presence. If you're a parent and you remember walking into your child's bedroom when they were little toddlers and they're standing in their crib, right? Do you remember um, if they're just standing there sort of waiting for you, you remember how their face would light up when you'd walk into the room, right? Very excited just to be just to be present with you. Or if you go in there and they had been crying, you walk in and you, the, the comfort they take in, in you picking them up and holding them, right? The comfort they receive and just in being in your presence. That's what the uh, children in this story want. They just want to be in the presence of Jesus. They, they bring nothing to the table. They just want to be an object of your love, right? That sort of humility. Jesus says that's what it means to receive the kingdom of God. You're, you're bringing nothing to the table. You are just showing up and you are an object of Jesus's love. He just is present with you and he loves you and that's wonderful, right? That is what it means to receive the kingdom like a little child receives in this context. But I think we can extend that out a little bit. We can take some more lessons from it because think other ways how children behave, right? So these children were being carried to Jesus, weren't they? They, they didn't go and seek him on their own. Their parents were bringing them along because that their disciples were rebuking the parents, not the children. And it's the same way with us. We did not seek Jesus out, but we were brought to him. So in, in some way, the church in general, and, and your church in particular, guided by the Holy Spirit, is kind of like our mother in this sense. She is where we are born again, and she is the one who seeks to bring us to Jesus, or at least that's her job, <laughs> right? So that's the second way that we are kind of like children when we receive the kingdom of God, is we, 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 are, not help, we, are, we are not able to do it on our own. We're sort of helpless in this, and, and we are carried to Jesus. And then the third way that we're kind of like children when we receive the kingdom of God is that we have sort of an unquestioning assumption of belonging to and belonging with the family, right? A little child in, in your home believes that this is my family. I belong here and I belong to this family and this family belongs to me. And the child is in general not looking for other families to belong to. It has this unquestioning assumption is this is where I belong. And the same thing is true for us. When we receive the kingdom of God, we get that unquestionable uh, foundational knowledge that you are part of the family. Nobody can take that away from you. Right? You, are, you, are, you are a child of God. You have been called by name. You have been marked. You have been sealed. You have, you have been claimed by Christ as his own. And um, that is, is another way that, that being like a child is, is, is instructive, instructive for us as, as we are children of God. And then in verse 16, uh, Jesus takes the children in his arms and he puts his hands on them and he blesses them. And that's where we're going to end today, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 16. We'll pick up verse 17 next time. The third teaching that Jesus had been giving in his ministry and repeated here in chapter 10. So um, 
thanks everybody for uh, being so patient as as these uh, podcasts take a long time to get out. Uh, if you have any questions, you have a want to give me a shout out. You can find me on Facebook, Lunch Break Bible Study, or you can reach me on uh, on email, Lunch Break Bible Study at gmail.com. Like I said, I'm Pastor Frank from Kansas City, Missouri, and I hope you have a blessed day. Rich man, rich man.